Hey, J. Crew, this is Josh, the producer of Unorthodox. In this episode, we talk to Nick Kroll about his Netflix show, Big Mouth. It's an animated show about teens, but it's pretty raunchy. Use your judgment about listening with kids in the room. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Back in the saddle. First, ba- first one up. Back at Argo Batter Studios. Up. What did we say? Is this our first time at Argo Studios in 5780? Because we've been on the road. I we've been doing so. it from other places. I feel like I haven't been here. I didn't even know what floor to get off on. I had that moment, too. I was up 12. Tablet Senior Writer Leo Leibovitz, also here. And the Merry Cheshvan to you. Oh. I, I love a Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan, right? It's just... <laughs> There's nothing quite like it. A Rosh Chodesh you Cheshvan. You had me at Cheshvan. <laughs> it's crispy. It's, it's ugh. autumn-y. Two incredible guests for you today. We sat down with Nick Kroll for the second time. We're just talking about his Netflix show, Big Mouth, now in its third season. And then like the first time where we talked about Eichmann, this time we talked about funny shit. Uh, and Stephanie spoke with Gentile of the Week, Sarah Blake, about her novel, The Guest Book. She's a real Gentile. Is she really? Because... She's a wasp. I, because, you know, in my life, Blake is my, my moyle, Emily Blake whose dad, Arnold Blake, was briefly my pediatrician in the 1970s. Uh, I remember this. So Blake, to me... there's nothing goish about Emily Blake. But is Blake one of those names that was anglicized from... Totally. What what are the other ones you're It was originally Bialy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think of Blake, in my life, it's a crypto... Bagelstein. Jewish name. She's a hardcore wasp, and the book is amazing. Well, I'll talk about it Is the book waspy? Oh, my God. The book is about this wasp dynasty that's essentially undone by three interactions with Jews among the three different generations (laughs) in the book. And that's not how they describe the book, but that's actually what like happens. Like each of them has an unsavory Jewish accountant Basically. who fleeces them? No, 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 no. Like how they, in, their interactions with him, they, it's on their end, what they do and it how they treat them. happy, is... you know, suppression of feelings until they met the Jews. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I haven't heard it yet, so I'm excited to hear it. Leo, what's going on in your life? So Stefani and I kicked off, I think kind of officially. The, the North fi- American tour. 5780 <laughs> yeah. North American tour of this here on Orthodox Podcast. Oh, Stephanie, how, how great was Boston? Okay, can we talk about how we got to Boston? I assume vehicularly. Yes, but not just any vehicle. A vehicle in which, so I, so basically I was told to meet Liel outside Barney Greengrass. Just because, you know, to keep the stereotype alive. (laughs) (laughs) And he pulls up in his car with his kids and his wife, Lisa. We just hopped on the hutch and drove to Boston and it was the funniest. You took your family? Oh, yes. As the kids insisted on listening to Disney songs in Hebrew, which let me tell you, it's something else. E akuna matata se achlashi. I mean, it's funny because it's like, what's hakuna matata in Hebrew? But I guess it's still right. hakuna matata. It's a hakuna matata. It's, it's a hakuna matata. <laughs> the hakuna matata lyrics literally have Baruch Hashem in them. And <laughs> Stephanie's no listening. Worries. She's like, what? what? Wait, I know that one. So we got to Boston and we did this great event at Temple Israel of Boston. The nicest. I mean, that bima, it was insane. People were like looking at the picture. I mean, there were pictures. First of all, they have a Louise Nevelson outside, mm-hmm. which I believe is like one of like two or three three Louise Nevelson statues in like northeastern. And probably the only one at a synagogue. Right. right. Uh, and and second of all, the Bima looked like something designed It was like by... a VMA stage. It was <laughs> right. the craziest thing I've ever seen. And it was so like accessible and everything was kind of like rounded. It was and, like, like a synagogue by Ridley Scott. You know? <laughs> it was amazing. It was so fun. And then afterwards we met some like 
some real unorthodoxies. Were there some super fans there? The J Crew was there. We met Shauna Harris. We did. And I really? Said, Shauna Harris of the Facebook of group. Of the Facebook group. <laughs> and she was like, oh, oh, do I post too much? I was like, no, no, you are like our, our rock. <laughs> you are like our moderator. So her and her husband were there and I and Hannah Kressel, which was really, really fun. She goes to Brandeis and she was basically like, you should do an episode about like about college kids and Jewishness and like what it's like on college. It's a great idea. What it's like on campuses. It's a great idea. And then Laura Handler and her girl Robin invited me for their yoga pants Shabbat. Yoga pants Shabbat. You show up in, I mean, I'm wearing yoga pants. Show yoga? You don't do yoga. I felt just a little left out, but I, but I do understand not wanting to see me in yoga pants, so we're all cool. <laughs> Wait, so you? it's not yoga-themed oh, no, no. Kabbalah it's Shabbat? It's just the pants, It's just man. you eat in you, yoga yeah, pants. right. And it's actually perfect, because it's like, I'm wearing leggings right now. It's not appropriate for any, like, it's just. I'm not, it's athleisure. It's athleisure, it's yeah. Athleisure. It's an athleisure Shabbos. Wow. Athleisure spirituality. So you didn't go, but you have a standing invitation. Well, have a standing invitation. You have a standing invitation. Yeah, it's been tweeted. That's I wrote it's it in more, their book. It's more like a reclining uh, invitation. I don't think there's a lot of standing in yoga pants. What's Shabbat. new with you, Mark? Uh, we haven't seen you in a while. Well, as you guys know, and I want to send out a huge apology to the people of Greater Boston of the 617 because I would have loved to go. But is there another Come, city that. But I was in Pittsburgh for the anniversary of the shooting, and there were a lot of events. And one of the most moving things I did, the Jewish Federation organized a whole day of events that included community service. And one of the things they did was they set up a number of cemeteries that needed cleaning, that needed leaf raking, and things like that. And I was at the Bene Israel Cemetery on this beautiful, beautiful hill. I actually have relatives buried there. My Aunt Elisa's husband, Dave's family, was a B'nai Israel family and they're Shribers. And I went around with Tammy Hepps, who has written for Tablet, and she was organizing this cleanup. And it was just really extraordinary to see all these people turn out to just clean the graves of dead Jews. I mean, that was that That's was wonderful. very special. And then in the evening, I went to the big, you guys were at Soldiers and Sailors Hall last year, right, for the, the vigil the day after the shooting. And this year on the anniversary of the shooting, they had a kind of one year coming together, which was which was also, you know, quite moving. I think that some people in Pittsburgh are a little like memorialized out. And there were definitely a lot of people, including victims' families, who were like, you know, I'm gonna skip the big right. thousand person. Well like the big show, basically. Yeah. Basically the big gala is not but that's not for us. Not not yeah. for us. I get that. There was a minion out front. There was so there was there was Mincha before it at about uh four forty five, then the event was five to six, and they came out and everyone gathered again and there was Mariv. And there was a um there's a big missile in the plaza at Soldiers and Sailors, which basically served as the Mechitza. Like <laughs> <laughs> like Judge Danny Butler is hanging during during uh, you know he's he's davening over there and I'm hanging with his wife Nina who used to be the principal of the Just day school. Like we do it like, in the idea. Literally, it's like two feet high and it's a missile and we're sitting on like women the wall. On one side of the missile. The, I'm sitting with the women on the other side. They're just saying like, "Hey, hubby!" And somebody said to me, "Oh, look, has a missile ever been a machitza before?" So that was very cool to unwind from from all this you yeah. know, strenuous reporting. I know you've you've been to Pittsburgh 29 times. Now. 29 times. What, what, what do you do? What do I do in my spare time? Buddy, you should ask. I'm so excited. The first thing I want to say is I missed Marianne Williamson, your presidential dark horse, visiting a yoga studio in New Haven. Oh, my God. And if anyone is a political junkie out there and wants to just read a fun story, New Haven has this extraordinary hyperlocal nonprofit website, newhavenindependent.org, run by my friend Paul Bass, a, a great Jew. Great Jew. Great Jew. They have a story about Marianne Williamson coming to New Haven and speaking to, it looked like 100 people at the yoga studio. And I just thought that is, maybe that is what we need for president. The revolution of love begins. So I missed that, but... I've gotten in the past just week really into the idea of making crossword puzzles. And the Times had a series last year, 2018, about a four-part series by some of their leading puzzle makers about how do you craft one? How do you make the grid? How do you make good clues? And I devoured it and I got some of this free software and I've, I made my first puzzle. Do you do that like on, online, basically? It's not like the olden days where you're like crafting 
there's 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 software that makes the grid for you that makes it that easy and also you can there's a lot of i don't know if it's the puzzling community considers it cheating but if you need a four letter word where the third letter is d it'll give you it'll one. you all 8412 options the art is choosing the clue right right so it's really like, the yeah. hard part is actually not creating the grid it's writing and clever carefully clues carefully writing the clever clue like something you should never pay for <laughs> oh uh, it's nine letter movie to AMC tickets. <laughs> so here's the thing. You should do uh, an unorthodox word search. I'm kind of obsessed and I would love for, uh, I'm sure we have uh, about 1,800 puzzle mavens in the J Crew. I would love for you guys to- Would you honor us by putting up your puzzle for the J Crew? Can we put yeah, up the link one. on Facebook? You know, it's so funny because I actually think this first one I made was good enough that I could try to sell it to a leading make newspaper. One for, just for us. I'm going to make the next one is just for you guys. Yes. I'm going to, the first one I want to see if I can sell. The world's that would, leading Jewish podcast. I'm going to make see. one for the J Crew sometime in the next couple. You can sell the first one, but we should probably split the proceeds. <laughs> before it's we, only fair. Before we go any further, um, let's call an audible. And since we guys were talking about Boston, do we just want to say something right now in our cheery banter about where we're going to be? coming up OMFG where aren't we going I where aren't we going to be I can't even remember this weekend November 2nd and 3rd we will be in Detroit Michigan for the Detroit Jewish Book Fair we're doing an Orthodox live show November 2nd at 8pm that is mm-hmm. Saturday night post mm-hmm. jobs mm-hmm. then on Sunday Liel and I and our editor-in-chief Alana Newhouse are doing a panel about writing for different mediums then the next day we all head to Denver Colorado November 4th that is Monday Mark is doing a book talk at 3pm as part of the Jewish Book Festival there and then that night at 6.30 we are doing an Orthodox live show at the JCC at Lane Wolf Theater and then Mark gets to go home. Liel and I continue <laughs> down to Houston. We are going to do a meet and greet and signing. And then that night, November 6th, we're doing a teen event at 730 for teens grades 8 through 12. So if that applies to you and you're part of their high school program, come and on down. That, I will just go and stand outside my favorite barbecue place and just smell it. Just smell it. I'll I can't, eat it, can't for eat it you. anymore. I want to say something about Denver, which is the Gentile of the Week is a get of mine. My old uh, friend, Mike Johnston, who was a state senator there for a long time, lost in the Democratic primary for governor because Jared Polis entered then was running for senator, but then Hickenlooper, you know, wow. when he dropped out of the pres race, oh, Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper, Hickenlooper's Johnston out of the Senate race, but he's going to be their senator or governor or something someday. He also, and I say this with mad love in my heart, a more gentilic Gentile you've never met. I mean, Johnston. Like varsity right. soccer. He's not even cool. Johnson. He's flowing, flowing blonde locks. Oh, grew up in the Colorado fresh air. He will bring such beautifully mile high goyish ways to that An show. American Adonis. I love it. He really I'm is. going to spend every free moment I have at Casa Bonita. The other thing about Mike Johnson is he claims to have introduced me and Sid, oh which is God. a slight queering of the real story, but he claims to be responsible for base Oppenheimer. We'll, 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 we'll ask him. Okay, yeah. but this is not the end of our November travel. November 14th, <laughs> Liel and I will be in Margate, New Jersey at the JCC by the Sea. Then November 17th, that Sunday, we are going to Cincinnati to do a live show at their Global Day of Learning. Is that then, the end of our November No, of no, there's still another no, week. No, it is not. Um, <laughs> Mark just spit out his coffee. Sorry, kids. No dad for the next eight months. I've got a podcast family. November 20th. That is a Wednesday. I'm going to Dresher, Pennsylvania to Temple Sinai at 7 p.m. The following day, Liel and I are at the Center for Jewish History on West 16th Street in Manhattan. Hold on. Fran Dresher has her own town. (laughs) (laughs) I knew she was wealthy, but not that wealthy. Don't interrupt me. I need to finish this. Friday, November 22nd, Liel and I again are going to be at Shabbat at Sutton Place Synagogue up on the mid-Upper East Side. You can get all of this information. All of it. All of this. All of it. By going to tabletmag.com slash unorthodox. Orthodox Live. 
This week in News of the Jews, a British teacher was fired for... Um, here's the thing about the British anti-Semitism. It used to be genteel. It used to be like, I'm sorry, we're not going to admit you to that Oxford college. Yeah, You'll it, have to go it to it that one. Crassier. And now it's the elementary school teacher who, according to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, was fired after telling Jewish students that she would, quote, ship them off to the gas chambers if they didn't finish their schoolwork. This teacher, who's at Newberry's primary school, allegedly told her students that she was joking and urged them not to tell anyone. But word had spread on the messaging app popular among Jews, WhatsApp, and the teacher was terminated on Friday, just in time for Shabbos. And the teacher faced her final solution. <laughs> she was shipped off. It was a class of 28 people. Apparently, 11 of them were Jewish. And the teacher discovered that work truly does make you free. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's crazy because it's not like there was like two Jewish kids. Right. It's almost half. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> right. a lot of kids. Right. It's a minion right there. <laughs> oh, my God. That is. But it's a primary school. So does that mean they're not of age yet to count for a minion? What has happened to British anti-Semitism since the days when, you know, Evelyn Waugh and Brideshead revisited? It's and now it's dispiriting, You know, in the old it? days, it used to be like, well, he's, um, you know, he's, um, he's a cosmopolitan, <laughs> which meant, you know, dirty Jew handling <laughs> money. And now it's like, I'm going to ship your sorry asses off. Gas chamber. Brexit really, really did a number of these people. They can always go across the North Sea and then oh. take a train down to into um, uh, uh into Belgium. Oh, you mean the child rape capital of the world? But that's not what they're in the news for this week. Oh, it's either that or anti-Semitism. What is it this week, Leo? Anti-Semitism. Do you, you want to bring us the news from Belgium this week? Do you guys remember last year how we reported dutifully and diligently on this horrendous parade that was held in some podunk town in Belgium mm -hmm. where people dressed up as giant puppets of Hasidic Jews throwing around money while rubbing their hook noses? Yep. Do you remember how everyone in the world said this was crazy offensive and absolutely had to stop? Yes, except the Belgians. What do you think the Belgians are doing this year? Tell me, Liel. Exactly the same thing, only this year, not only do they have the giant Jew puppet wearing like big fur Hasidic hats with very prominent noses, yep. they also have posters of said puppets holding what handling what please say shekels oh no just bills just dollar, bills dollar bills well, I'm glad just we've fistfuls upgraded. of bills oh yes they really do learn learn their lesson but to be fair there is an upside because the new prime minister sophie wilms is as it turns out not only the first woman ever to be belgian prime minister but also the first jew or dare i say jewess dare i say juive you know what not not buying this is good news why is and that here's why I saw the headline. Yep. As soon as I saw it, I was like, I know a bunch of our listeners are going to be like, see, it's not really all that bad. And then literally three sentences into the story, it's like, of course, Williams had never discussed being Jewish in public. Uh, she also hides the fact, said another member of the Jewish community who wished to remain nameless. <laughs> like, you can't even be upfront about being Jewish. Now, someone did come out to put a, a did put a name to this story. Uh, this is, again, from the JTA. Wilms's mother is Ashkenazi Jewish and lost several relatives in the Holocaust. Uh, Philippe Markowitz, the president of the Consistoire Organization of Belgian Jewry, confirmed Monday, quote, she hid her Jewish identity, though it seems to be a private detail from her biography and not something connected to any policymaking aspect, he said. Which is the what, weirdest... What does that mean? It's just personal shame. It's not political. No, that's not what he's saying. It's just she doesn't like it. No, no, no. It's darker than that. He's telling the JTA, just so you know, 
She doesn't make policy as a Jew. Uh, he's saying her. He's saying, don't worry. She not only is she hiding it, but also it's a personal identity not connected to any policy, i.e., her monetary policy. Interest right. rates will not be decided by. Don't worry, fellow Belgians. This grubby Jew will not take away your shekels. That's exactly right. That's exactly what's but, going but on. Some... You will not be forcefully circumcised. <laughs> the same guy points out she has attended Holocaust commemoration events and highlighted them on her personal oh, website. Wow. So it almost Ooh. is like she's a politician. Really? <laughs> she's a serious practice. Really? That's the bar now? But you know what? I'm going to say this in all sincerity. Like, that's tough, right? She's trying to, I mean, yeah. let's feel for her for a moment. She's trying to make it in, in Belgian politics. And she knows that if it's revealed that she's a money grubbing, you know, <laughs> pork rejecting, boy circumcising Jewess, Bullshit. she'll never make it. Bullshit. So Benjamin she can't be Israeli, out. A slightly better prime minister of a much well, better we don't nation, know that yet. Said. She's a new prime minister. And I quote. She might lead Belgium to greatness. I don't, you know, it's Belgium. No, Just hold no, your no horses is, there, sir. Not even the Messiah is going to lead that country to greatness. But, you know, the, my favorite Benjamin Israeli quote when someone kind of made some Jew joke, he said, you know what? My ancestors served as guards in King Solomon's temple when your ancestor was still digging potatoes in the dirt. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. Hot Mike drop. But then he got baptized and became an Episcopalian. I didn't get that far <laughs> in the book, so <laughs> don't spoil it. So, oh, I only snap. like this part of the Israeli. Okay, I will say that in Boston, I think it was Shauna, she came up to us after and was like, is Belgium in the book? And I was like, <laughs> no, because this is a book for people who like ne- don't necessarily need to hate Belgium also, the way Also, Belgium Liel will does. never be in any book that I write, ever. And, okay, two, and a couple happy stories. First of all, this is my happy this, story. This is your happy place, Belgium hating. Two happy stories to conclude the NOTJ this week, the News of the Jews. Researchers have found in an Israeli cave, uh, not far from Tel Aviv, what they believe are the fossilized remnants of the oldest leftovers ever discovered. It's some uh, bone marrow that appears to have been stored and uh, saved for eating later. And the researchers said that it's, quote, the earliest evidence for storage and delayed consumption of bone marrow ever. And in an amazing historical development, it was wrapped in tinfoil. That's <laughs> Settling this discussion. Saran wrap. It's basically, it's funny because it's like, it's a deer bone. It's remnants of a bone. Kosher. That had meat in, like like the marrow inside it. This is kosher, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I never actually. It's pre-kosher root laws, I think. But it's just really funny. Proof that we Jews invented leftover. And also coming out of Israel, this is definitely the best story of the week. So there is this annual Bible quiz. Which... By the way, Bible quiz, not even kidding. Huge. 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 Every Independence Day. You'd wake up super early in the morning. It didn't matter if you've never freaking read the Bible. You're sitting to watch this. This is like who wants to be a millionaire at times, you know. Is it like a spelling bee where everyone is kind of entered in their elementary school classroom? I entered, but I entered, and I think I would have done well, but I entered during a period in high school where, dare we say. You weren't studying? There were other distractions. There were other distractions, right. Involved. If, if, you know, drugs and sex didn't exist, I would be a very good Bible scholar. I guess this, our equivalent would be like if two kids who went one and two in the spelling bee 10 years later get engaged. Right. They're like 10. Mm-hmm. Azrael Shalat, who narrowly beat Uriah Cohen in last year's contest, pops the question to her. Oh, the Times yeah. Israel says that they basically met after competing against each other in this. They both appear in a photo on stage with Benjamin Netanyahu. Their darling. Getting, are yeah. Azrael and Uriah. Like, it doesn't get better than that. Basically, they've been together for the past year. He was like, now that I've won and you're in second place, I can propose to you. <laughs> By the way, I, if she won, she would have to And he's 19, propose. she's 18 or something. And I it's bet, so Israeli. I bet that he proposed via some like obscure biblical reference. I will be your David. You will be my Michal. <laughs> this is my favorite line of the piece, though. The Bible quiz's longtime host, Avshalom Kor. Is he like a famous person? Oh, my God. He's and amazing. this is all he does, right? It's like Bert Parks with Miss no, America. It's, it's like this, it's the one but thing. He's also the, the country's premier linguist. 
Wow. Well, he congratulated the couple in his signature flowery style, saying, There is nothing as great as the nation of Israel's love for the book of books and the love of a bride and groom who both love the book and each other. I mean, I I think this. Mazel tov. My icy heart melts. We want an invitation. Whenever that wedding is. We want to officiate. Uh, Speaking of books, the newest Jewish encyclopedia is out, and people should go uh, to their nearest independent bookstore and order a copy, or their chain bookstore, or go to tabletmag.com slash newish Jewish, where we offer many options for the purchasing of the newest Jewish encyclopedia. I gave a copy to one friend yesterday, actually, and she's like, oh, thank you. This is amazing. And 90 minutes later, a text arrived. It says, oh, it's by you. Congratulations. <laughs> I thought, like, yes. I love seeing that post on the Facebook group of Marilyn Gesson, who took a bunch of her friends out to dinner for her birthday. And for her birthday, bought her friends copies of this here newest Jewish of people. I love Marilyn. She's I amazing. also was very touched by another couple on the Facebook group that said that they now have a new minhag, if you will, a new custom, that every Friday night to do something a little bit special, a little bit different, they pull out the encyclopedia, they pick a few entries, they read them together, and they discuss them. What a wonderful thing to do. Meanwhile, you have my daughter Clara, who told some friend at Shul, some older person, who walked up to her and said, I see your daddy has a book. And she said, well, it's not a real book. It's nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are here with Nick Kroll the comedian, actor, and former adolescent behind the hit Netflix animated series Big Mouth, whose third season is now available for streaming. He was last here on this show when he was in an, the Eichmann movie, <laughs> Operation Finale. What did you call played, Range, baby? Yeah, Range. Yeah, where he played Rafi Eitan. You may remember him from such previous hits as The Holocaust. <laughs> Welcome back, Nick. Thank you for having me back. It's a slightly different project. A little bit. Operation I mean, this finale. is like still pretty Jewish. I mean, it's a very Jewish show. So, for those who haven't watched the show, we, there there may be some <laughs> listeners out there who haven't watched it. And last time you were here, season one had already dropped, but you were talking about Nazis and Eichmann and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, give people a quick a quick nutshell. Right. Like, what, what is this Big Mouth? So, Big Mouth is a animated show on Netflix based on originally me and my friend Andrew Goldberg, who he and I went to Solomon Schechter together in Westchester many years ago. The jumping off point was inspired by our adolescence. He was a very early bloomer. He uh, was able to grow facial hair. His parents like waxed his upper lip when he was in like sixth grade. <laughs> they really did that? Oh yeah, they li- oh that God. is based on real events. They waxed his upper lip and for many years he could not grow. He could grow a full 
full beard by eighth grade, but could not grow lip hair. And we like in the just in the center, right below his nose, and we called it his reverse Hitler, right? Because <laughs> he was able to grow hair everywhere, but right below his nose. And I was a very late bloomer. I didn't hit puberty until into high school, uh, and I was a little guy. And so it became. The base of the show was these two best friends who were at very different moments in their physical maturation that we would try to explore puberty through the lens of these two boys. And then we expanded out into their other friend groups, also based on kids and stories and things that we knew. For example, Jay, voiced by Jason Manzukis, is based on a few friends who's a kid who's obsessed with magic, but also has sex with his pillows, <laughs> uh, which is what one of our friends used to do. Um, <laughs> And then Jesse, voiced by Jesse Klein, in part based on a friend of ours growing up, who told us when we told her that we were doing the show and that we were thinking about a character sort of inspired by her, she was like, oh, well, I, I should tell you, I got my period for the first time on a class trip to the Statue of Liberty, which we use in the show. The only dramatic license we took was we put her in white shorts to just heighten the <laughs> And then had a nightmare. huge tampon Michael, Michael Stipes. Stipes. <laughs> yes, yeah, sing everybody, <laughs> a song called Everybody Bleeds. Everybody. <laughs> And the other license you took was you added visible hormone monsters. And you should, you should also yes. mention that bit of license. Yes. So we wanted it to be animated. You know, a lot of shows that deal with puberty and adolescence, the kids grow out. Like, I, we grew up watching The Wonder Years. That was, like, a big show for us. And you guys are similar ages, I think. Sure. So, like, the problem with The Wonder Years was that Fred Savage hit puberty and couldn't be the cute 12, 13-year-old boy for many years. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, so he— <laughs> Hi, Whitney Cooper. Yeah, so, it, so you all of a sudden have to— figure out how to, you know, th those shows kind of lose their spark pretty quickly. But with an animated show, with adults voicing those kids, those kids can stay that age for as long as they're interesting to, to see. We are slowly aging them because it's a show about puberty and adolescence and change that we are slowly changing them because I think it would be a disservice to puberty to not watch them evolve. So that was one of the reasons for animation. And then we realized if we do an animated, I think whenever you're doing an animated show, you have to ask, why is this animated? Why are we doing this animated? So partly was that the voices could stay the same, the kids could stay similar age, but also then we were able to add things like hormone monsters. And the hormone monsters are the little devil on the kid's shoulder, but they're full size, that begin to influence and speak to what these changing bodies and desires and emotions are. Andrew, you know how I always pitch sending a dick pic? Even to that email from Planned Parenthood. Come on, you know they party. Maury. Well, this time it's actually appropriate. No, still not. <sighs> Shall we consult the manual? Let's see, foreskin do's and don'ts. We found that to be incredibly useful, one, to be able to vocalize what's going on in these 12, 13-year-old kids' minds without having them saying them and, and acting out on them. So you and John Mulaney play the two best friends, the protagonists of the show, and you don't play the Jewish one. John Mulaney, this like Catholic comedian, yes. plays the Jewish one. Yes, but I think we can all agree that John might be more Jewish than any of us. <laughs> it's true. In certain ways. It was a funny thing. I was like, I don't think both of us can be Jewish on the show, even though Andrew Goldberg and I obviously grew up both Jewish. But Nick's dad feels very Jewish, Elliot. But again, voiced by Fred Armisen. Who also feels kind of Jewish. Feels to me, at times. He's a Queens guy. <laughs> he's right. enough he's ethnicities to be yeah. anything you right. want. Right. He's everything. Yeah. He and Maya Rudolph are like, the, they're everything. Right. They're just every, They can play everything. Yeah. But it was, yeah, Nick's, Andrew is Jewish, Jewish, and Jesse is Jewish. Yeah, dad. Jesse Glazer, this is my dad, Staff Sergeant Edward McDell. Glazer. Hmm. I've known a few Glazers over the years. Uh, is your mother also Jewish? Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. My mother is Jewish. She's a Jew. Uh, she's Jewish. Well, we love the nanny. Sure. Um, yeah, Fran Drescher's terrific. Oh, yeah, we love all those traditional Jewish sitcoms, uh, Seinfeld, Mad About You, Friends. Uh, I don't think Friends is Jewish. Well, yeah, but definitely Monica and Ross. Okay. And Missy well, is half Jewish. Missy Foreman Greenwald, who is based off the name of one of our producers, Abe Foreman Greenwald. <laughs> but the idea that Missy was, ha her mother in our mind was Jewish, although I don't know, it's in this season that she describes herself as a culturally born Jewish and a NPR Jew. Jew versus Andrew's father, who's a Fox News Jew. Oh, wow. Oh. Those are like the new denominations. Right. Yes. So we we felt like if we covered those two, then we were, and then Jesse's parents are sort of, are very Jewish, but not Fox News Jew or NPR Jew. They're like what? MSNBC Jews. Yes, exactly. Those are my people. This is an important new taxonomy. Yeah. yeah. So watching the show, which again, I, I cannot tell you how fucking amazing Thank I think you. it is. I got this kind of sense uh, because it's so steeped in, in all things Jewish, even though it's, you know, most of the time it's in, it's in the background, that there was kind of this interesting almost equivalence, right, between being Jewish and being a pubescent boy, right? There are uh -huh. two kind of like sure. standing on the outside trying to figure out what this thing is mm -hmm. in an America that seems kind of dominated by white wasp by adults, male, yeah. adult. Did that occur to you as you as you were working well, on Well, I think weirdly Jewish Jews have gotten a, it's we are part of a long line of like adolescent I mean from like Philip Roth on you know there's like a level of kind of what are the Jewish ad, male adolescent experience to even you know super bad and everything in between there is some quality to this period of life that feels like Jewish men have explored. I think where we began to deviate is that it's also an expression of the Jewish girl female experience. I mean, it's all adolescence, but the idea that like Jesse Glazer is like very much a Jewish girl in season one, she has her bat mitzvah. In Temple. Beth Amphetamine. Yeah, <laughs> Temple Beth Amphetamine. And her mother is having an affair with the cantor. We felt like the rabbi would be a little hack. It would be with, with Cantardina <laughs> that it, we would go past that to Cantardina. So my 12-year-old says to me, not knowing that I'm deep into Big Mouth at like 11 at night after she's gone to bed. Mm -hmm. she says, as Dad, it was intended. As yeah. it was intended, yeah. right, for 45-year-old men yes. to binge at 11 at night. She says to me, Dad, do you know the show Big Mouth? I said, I do. And she said, would it be okay if I watched it? Oh. And I said, in 30 years. We don't tell her that she can't read a book. If she came to us and said, Dad, what's this Portnoy's complaint? Go with God, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So I thought about it, and she has her own Chromebook, and she is on our Netflix. And I'm like, well, I can say no, but I'm not sure. prepared to do the level of parenting that will foreclose it, right? Yeah. So I said, yeah, sure, why? And she said, because everyone is, re is watching it at school. Yeah. And so you're big at... Engineering and Science University Magnet School in West Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> and I'm just imagining all these 11 and 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, yeah. okay. that are getting their sex ed from Big Mouth. <laughs> is that terrifying? Uh, is that terrifying? Honestly, we knew we wanted to make the show for us, for us to watch. We are, uh, you know, we're all about a similar age and generation. And we tended it to be a funny show that we would enjoy watching. And we assumed it would go younger than us, but we didn't know 12, 13-year-olds would be watching. And then it came out and we realized that they were. And we were 
grateful that we had taken the time to make sure that our, honestly, that our messaging and our politics were ones that we could stand behind. The women stuff, the gay stuff, you got the moment right. We were like, we want to make this show, we want to be on the right side of an issue in our minds, morally. Then the kids, we realized kids were watching it, and we were honestly relieved that we could stand behind the messaging that a 12-year-old could watch. I mean, the show is very dirty. There's hard, big, crazy jokes and crazy stuff happens. But also, we're incredibly aware that your 12-year-old daughter could be watching the show. And we want to make sure that what the messages are that she might receive out of it, we think are on the right side of history. See, that's fascinating to me because it, it doesn't fuck with your head. Like, at some point, do you send a writer and say, oh, my God, that's a great joke. But we have 12-year-olds watching that because it's a big but, hit. Does it Leo, mess with your mind? your kids are younger. Right, eight and six. Right. I mean, my kids have YouTube. Right. Like, I'd so much rather be on Big Mouth right. than Pornhub XX Temptation. Uh, or that's whatever. that's honestly where I land is because people have been like, it's so dirty, my kids can't watch it. And I say like, <laughs> what what Andrew said because I don't have kids. Andrew's kids are like nine and six. What he has said is, my kids can watch the show when they are the age of the kids mm. in the show. In the show, right. And I think your daughter is in eighth grade. She's 12. The kids are really in seventh, eighth grade, 12, 13, 14 years old. The idea being when people are like, the show's so dirty, I'm like, it is. But don't for a second think that your kid can't watch equivalently dirty, gross, crazy things on the internet that they're not already watching them. With live people. Let alone pornography, which is so easy for a kid to get to. Like, we're talking about, like, crazy things that they are watching. Like, they're two clicks away from a beheading. Like, you know what I mean? Like, any they can get to anything that have no context. So at least the things that we're talking about, which is like, and there are big crazy jokes of, like, I'm thinking in season three, Andrew makes out with his cousin. <laughs> You know, We're going to get to that okay, episode. Okay, great. <laughs> Which is such a, such a Jewish episode. And but... frankly, who among us has not made out with a cousin? Right. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> like, let's we, we're we're all, all high and mighty stop, here. Stop quoting your dad's law commercials. <laughs> so, so we're all like, you know, there's stuff like that or bigger, crazier, dirtier jokes. I will stand behind every one of those jokes as a big joke, but also that people can watch stuff elsewhere without any of like the thought as to what are we actually saying. So we ask that question a lot. It's never at the expense of the joke. And there are times as we're scripting and outlining a show where we're like, well, we're morally on the right side of this issue, but now it feels too much like an after school special and we have to pull how do we figure out how to have the same messaging without any of the finger wagging? But you've gotten like a Planned Parenthood award, right? Like for you, your show's yeah. been recognized for the messages in it. Yes. Which must be weird. We for wrote it. an episode that is entirely about, it's like an, it's a 25 minute advertisement for Planned Parenthood. Speaking of pillow fucking, I just want to say Booksmart, which of course has, you know, one of the characters yes. gets off on with her, yes. like she has, the, her she pillow has her is, teddy. her teddy, teddy bird. is her lover. And there's a very explicit scene where like the mom is like, oh, Teddy. And, and you did friend, see this with your daughter in this and movie. So I, I did see it. I was trying to remember if I took her or if my mom, no, my grandma took her. No, soccer tournament, right. Memorial Day, very big Up drama. in Boston. Yeah. Right. And I took her and we're sitting next to each other and I'm like, oh, she's already gotten screwing the pillow. Yeah. But you actually did it better because you have gay friendly screwing the pillow. Yeah. And also there's a kind of wit. Or, I mean, it's a much more literary, I think. I thought that movie was good. But I actually thought that in terms of her development as a hilarious Jewess, yeah. your, your show was going to take her farther well, it's, with pillow fucking. Well, and I think it's, you know, again, it's the, the idea 
idea is because we get to go back to see Missy, who has a glowworm that she has been humping since she was like four years old. And you see her at four, and she's had this long relationship with this glowworm. And her mom is saying to her at four, she's like, Missy's like, this feels good. And her mom is like, that's okay that it feels good. Just don't do this out in public. And that was the messaging that her mom was giving her as a young, young woman. And in that episode, that's the sleepover episode, that's the culmination of the shame wizard. In season two is dominated by the shame wizard, which I think is so connected to puberty and adolescence. It's where we start to grow the concept of shame and really takes us over and in, in different ways. And poor Missy gets caught sort of humping her glowworm at a school sleepover. And so she then is filled with shame. And part of it is going back to remembering her mom saying, like, this is stuff you do in private. The show has this huge heart. I mean, beyond the messaging, beyond the jokes, it really is. I mean, these characters are very, very real, and the storylines are, are deeply kind of resonant and emotional. I'm wondering, you're sitting there, you're now all, you know, men and women in your 20s and 30s and 40s, mm -hmm. uh, and you're trying to kind of relive this most incredibly awkward, difficult yeah. time and subject. What is that like in retrospect? To just immerse yourself in that. Well, I can speak personally. I don't, you know, I, each writer has their own experience in the room. But for me, so much of adolescence was such an important time. It's when Andrew and I became best friends and really fell in love with comedy. I mean, I was always watching stuff, but like we started doing Wayne's World sketches at like Porum talent shows. Like we would host <laughs> the Solomon Schechter Porum talent show as Wayne and Garth. That's a much better Porum spiel than any I've seen. I, think. I feel like. <laughs> yes. Is there a video of that? I feel like that could I'm, be. I'm wondering. There must, we have never found it. If There's anyone a, out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was video there. We did a sketch when we were 14 or 15, our first like film sketch. We had like our little VHS camera. And I remember. I remember doing a sketch as Rick James and as Roy Cohn. Those are the two, which sort of gives you a scope of my oh comedy my. in general. And then Chappelle comes along and steals your Rick James idea. I know, just like I the know. nerve of him. And Trump steals my Roy Cohn. Your Roy Cohn idea. By the way, I'm sure you were funny, but his is much funnier. It is. It's <laughs> hilarious. That period of life was very important and I, and I have found to be incredibly resonant in my journey. I identify very much as who I am based on who I was at 13, which was a late bloomer. I was little. So much of my personality was formed over being a little guy and not hitting puberty and, and looking and sort of compare and despair to like Andrew or my other friends friends right. who had hit puberty. And so as now a 41-year-old man who's regularly going to therapy, I talk a lot about the things that were happening to me at that age as incredibly important and formative to who I am now. So being in that writer's room and taking a look back at that time is not dissimilar to what I was and am doing in therapy. And the, th the loop between what I was talking about in the room and then bringing it to therapy and vice versa was very palpable and, and incredible, I mean, literally therapeutic. So a lot of it is basically thinking back about that moment you first saw Andrew's penis. Yeah, seeing Andrew's penis or getting pantsed. You know, I got pantsed and fully exposed to uh, my childhood crush when I was 13 years old and hadn't hit puberty and so was feeling very inadequate. And that kind of stuff really sticks with me and stuck stuck with me and 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 is part of who I am. Yeah, you have to write four seasons just, <laughs> just yeah. to exercise that <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. So there is this like brilliant, subtle Jewishness like and, and your character, Nick, as the non-Jewish 
friend gets to remark about like temple breath in the bar mitzvah episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, why does everyone have the worst breath here? Which yeah. is something I've wondered my entire, especially yeah. on Yom Kippur. Yes, of course. And then in season three, you join Andrew's family for a drive to Florida yes. for Passover. Yes. And I feel like the ca- the Passover animated <laughs> canon is the Rugrats episode, mm. which, you know, like. Have you seen that? The no. Rugrats Passover episode? No. But it's how people like learn, non-Jewish kids learn, who watch oh. Rugrats, learn the story of Passover. Gotcha. So you actually now are supplementing. Now they that. Yes. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that episode? Sure. So I used to go on road trips with Andrew and his parents. Like he was an only child and I was the youngest of four and always wanted to like get out of yeah. my house. We did a road trip, I remember, to Cooperstown to the Baseball Hall of Fame. The only time he and I have ever been in a physical fight was sitting in the back of that car fighting over like the lyrics to the Flintstones. But we just had been <laughs> cramped in a car for days. And in this episode, Nick goes on a road trip with Andrew and his parents to Florida. Uh, and he thinks he's going on like spring break to Florida. What he doesn't realize is he's going on a road trip with no stops because Andrew's father <laughs> wants to make good time. Andrew's father is voiced by Richard Kind. Who's so great. Who's so great and is the closest. The, the character that is the closest in real life is Andrew's father to Andrew's real father. So he's not just like a Jewish stereotype. I mean, if he is, then Andrew's father <laughs> is a Jewish. I mean, truly, like when Andrew showed the picture of Andrew's dad's character to his kids, they were like, oh, there's Papa. <laughs> like they, it was, there's no difference. So Scallops and all. Yeah, I, that's the one deviation. <laughs> so so Andrew's father wants to make good time to Florida. Let's go, we're already late. It's 7.01. Yeah, and he said 7. Let's go. It's spring break. It's supposed to be relaxing. Marty Glauberman doesn't relax. The man eats on the toilet to save time. They go down to Florida to an old age home in Lakeland, Florida, where they're going to celebrate Passover. Andrew's grandfather is Judd Hirsch, and his uncle is David Cross. But it's the story of Passover, including like making good time, getting out of Egypt. That's how the matzah is made. You don't have to let the bread uh, rise. We do a full Passover. You go back and see Moses and God and talking to the burning bush. And then they get down to Florida. They have a Passover. Andrew's cousin, voiced by Julie Klausner, who Andrew and I actually went to Solomon Schechter with, graduated the same year. Julie and I were in Oklahoma. She was the star, and I was Ali Hackam, the swarthy Persian peddler. <laughs> and Andrew was the stage manager, which we have another episode, which is about a school play, but based on Disclosure, the movie. Michael Douglas? Yes. So in episode nine of 10 of season three is Disclosure, the musical, based on the movie Disclosure. Anyway, so... Julie Klausner is Andrew's cousin. They make out. And meanwhile, Andrew's mother's character, Barbara, voiced by Paula Pell, who's an amazing writer and comedian, is going through menopause, and she is visited by the menopause banshee. So we have, like, the hormone monsters and shame wizards, and then in this case we have the menopause banshee, voiced by Carol Kane, and she is sort of haunting or bancheeing to Barbara as she's caught in the sweltering heat of Florida. And no AC in the car. No AC in the car and no AC in Florida either. Is there anyone you've wanted to get? I mean, Carol Kane, that had to be Carol Kane, right? It's like there's no one else who could have done that except Carol Kane. Do you sometimes put out the call? And is there has there been somebody you've really wanted in one of these cameos? 
who's turned you down? Sure. We Yes. I mean, we've been incredibly lucky. We have an unbelievable cast of full-time regular people and then guest voice as well. Um, we wanted Howard Stern to be one of the hormone monsters. He really doesn't do any anything outside of the show. There are Howard references throughout the show. There's a lot of stop the clocks. There's a lot of whoop whoops. There's it's uh, which is actually an insane clown posse. It's anyway. So, but besides that, I mean, of course, we've gone out to people who have politely declined, but for the most part, we've landed on people who we love, like Missy's hormone. She gets a hormone monster season three, and we got Tandy Newton, who's like was coming from Westworld set to play like a British party girl hormone monster. I don't know. It's again across the board. We have an insane cast. Listen, forget about all the. These people. Let's let's talk about the real talent. And uh-huh. Let's talk about you. Uh-huh. You're the only one who matters. <laughs> you, you do what? 98 voices for that show? Like 30? I've done, I think, around, at this point, over 30. How do you get into the? Because they are so incredibly distinct in their person. I mean, you could feel the embodiment of them when you're Murray, the hormone monster, or my, my personal favorite, Coach Steve. Coach Steve, yeah. How do you prepare? Uh, it's usually first instinct. Oftentimes, it's, it's pretty, like, immediate, struck by something, and be like, I think it's maybe this. Coach Steve is, you know, I've done versions of guys like Coach Steve. Again, I'm a New York tri-state area guy. So like that voice of, as I would say, that he lives in deep Queens, you know, like. (laughs) In case you forget your memory, this is a video to remind you how to drive. Oh, this isn't going to help at all, but I got to watch this. I'm going to demonstrate using this pizza. First, grab the pizza wheel and put your hand straight out like a mummy. Ooh, I it's, it's sort of just a voice that I grew up around. That kind of like I used to listen to WFAN sports radio, and whenever you're in a city, if you can listen to the talk radio in that city and the callers, if you can listen to any place that has callers, uh, you get access to a, a specificity of voice that is like like when I come home and I listen to that, I'm like, oh, it's like a hit. It's like it's yeah. like it's like smelling your mom's cooking. You just are immediately hit with a locality. But oftentimes it's an immediate, like the coach, uh, Rick, Coach D's hormone monster and, and Nick's hormone monster for a while, like it was sort of like, oh, we were talking about Coach Steve having a hormone monster and that voice came out. It's usually a first instinct. And then over time it evolves and gets more specific and you start to kind of find the pronunciations of different words and and then we write to it. And we do that with the rest of our cast as well, that if you listen to the first couple episodes that watch the first couple episodes, you hear us writing a character and then slowly you've got John Mulaney or Jenny Slade or Jordan Peele or Maya Rudolph or Fred Armisen or Jesse Klein or Jason Manzukis, Andrew Rannells, you start to write to what they do and they begin to improvise and infuse the characters and then we start to write to what they have brought to it. How different is it uh, having the freedom of animation? I mean, animation is, I have grown to love it because of how many different chances you get to fix things that are not working. So in live action, I mean, we had a similar thing in Broadway where John and I got to do the show every night and you keep getting to hear an audience and and revise and polish and change and the show changed quite a bit. But live action sketch show or film, you hope you got it on the day and then you hope you can save it in the edit. Um, With animation, whole scenes, storylines, let alone jokes, you have a radio play that you're listening to that you then can, we, you know, and I can re-record on my phone and send along that recording. When I was shooting Operation Finale and I was having Skype sessions with my Andrew and Mark and Jen, my partners, they would be like, okay, we rewrote this scene. It's not working. I would re-record it into my phone 
and then I would email them that recording on my iPhone that they would then plug in to then send off for the animatic or the color, and then I would go in and properly record it at some point, but you just keep getting these opportunities to be like, we punched up this joke, this storyline's not working, we realize this doesn't make sense. So animation really allows for a constant fine-tuning, and I think that's why so many animated movies sit with us and really last that and stand the test of time and animated shows the simpsons obviously being a clear example but like you think about the movies that your kids watch over and over and over you might get sick of the jokes but you can see how well crafted those stories are and I think that is due to the fact that it's animated and you get so many chances to fix it just as you were writing the show and having an opportunity to reflect on what puberty mm-hmm. in all its glory and terror was like for you. Did a similar thing happen for you in growing up Jewish? Did you come back and be like, oh, these kids are going through these things? Man, my bar mitzvah was really dumb or my moment in temple was really weird. My childhood is so infused with Judaism. Having gone to a Jewish day school, my parents being involved in the Jewish world and in various levels, and my siblings on various levels as they've gotten older, it's so in my, literally in my DNA that if I was going to make a show about my childhood, that there was going to be those elements inside of it. And and that, that happened to be my experience. My belief in making whatever I'm making, that in specificity, there's great universality. So obviously, like we have an episode in season one of, of Jesse's Bat Mitzvah. The sp- specifics of a Bat Mitzvah are so specific to the Jewish experience. But the universality of having a, a life event like a Bat Mitzvah or a confirmation or a quinceanera where all of your friends come and then your parents are going through a divorce or having a really difficult moment, there is something universal that any kid or any adult can remember what it felt like to have an event where your whole family and community comes together and then your parents are acting like assholes. Wherever you're from, that is tricky. That said, in this case, we are then filling it with being at temple and having temple breath. But the interesting thing is I always thought how cruel it was to put 12 and 13-year-old boys especially up on stage yeah. and ask them to sing in another language while yeah. their voices are cracking. And this idea of becoming a man or becoming yeah. a woman just never made sense to me. But now that I watch the show and you watch these very, very specific changes that are happening, it seems to make sense almost that there is this weird coming-of-age ceremony. So I'm wondering if you yeah. rethought how you saw the the bar and bat, the bas mitzvah. Well, I, I mean, ironically, I years and years ago, the first thing I ever did on a professional level in entertainment in any way was a book called Bar Mitzvah Disco that I did with my brother-in-law, Roger Bennett, and our partner on the book, Jules Schell. So weirdly, I've been thinking about coming of age in this way for a long time. And I do think it is partly like, what the idea of being like, I am this 13-year-old boy's voice is cracking and I now have to stand up in front of this whole congregation and say these things that maybe I understand or maybe I don't understand. It's an adult experience. Like that is a, that you are going to be faced with. I like, I remember giving my speech at my bar mitzvah. What temple? I went to J- JCCH, Jewish Community Center of Harrison at the time. Just wanted to give a shout out to whatever temple sure. it might be, yeah. But growing up, Giving, I remember giving my speech and having written, you know, at this time in our lives, we were like handwriting. There wasn't like, I didn't have a printer and a computer. I mean, maybe we did, but I wasn't using it. And I wrote my speech and I did not have 
the fifth page. I like lost the fifth <laughs> oh, <God>. page. <laughs> so I remember giving my speech and it was a right in an emotional moment. I was talking about my cousin who was HIV positive and got a bad blood transfusion in California. And, and I was right at that moment in the speech and I don't have the last page of my speech. So I'm sort of stumbling a bit there. And I think people think I'm getting very emotional talking about my cousin who's still alive and doing well and has led an amazing life. But I had to basically improvise the last page of my speech. And so there's lessons and things that you just have to like figure out and learn. And and you and I remember being at that party and and not having fun, not enjoying my bar mitzvah party, this big huge event. And it was my mom and I had planned all of it. She included me in it, and it was a little bit of a lesson in sort of. I was and it was interesting. I was recently at a wedding and uh, I was with my girlfriend, and she was like, "You're boy, you wow, you're a real like behavior police. Like this person is acting out." It is not their time to act out. This is my friend's <laughs> wedding. Like, and I'm realizing it's based on things that I was like, all of a sudden like, oh, right, because certain people acted out at my at bar, bar mitzvah. Yeah. That embarrassed me in a way that I was like, you're ruining this for me. Do you still have the dream? Like, you know, we all, the anxiety dreams. Like mm-hmm. mine specifically are, I used to fence in college and my dreams are like, I don't have the right, co- like my cords you are broken. fencing anxiety dreams? Yes. I had an anxiety dream when we were doing, <laughs> when we were doing Kroll show at one point in the middle of production and I remember screaming at a room, why doesn't anyone here respect me? <laughs> and I like woke up in the morning and I was like, huh. <laughs> I wonder what the sub, what, what, do you think, what do you think I was struggling with? And like my dreams are pretty literal. There's not a ton of subtext happening. Although I, I think I, I just spoke about this on a podcast, but I will speak to it because it is, I had an anxiety dream and during while I was like having my sexual awakening where I couldn't get my skis and my ski boots on and ski boots into the skis. And I woke up and had had, wet, had a wet dream. Or as Ooh. Coach Steve would say, your yeah, I made, sweeties I, into the... I, I bed wet thick Ew. is what he would say. <laughs> and then he made thick in the warm is what uh, having sex with a woman was. Putting my peen in your sweetie. What is the thing you've done that's been most underappreciated? For people who want to be crawl completists, Whoa. let's say they've seen... Let's say they've even been to your Broadway show, which I mean, is not... show is... Well, I was. I wonder where you go with that. By the way, I don't, I don't think, know. It's don't his question week, to answer. I don't think a week goes by in which I don't say to myself, just to kind of cheer myself up, by the power of this vest <laughs> on me. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. But shots, I, you take shots. that. Take um, that question over you. What's the thing that people might not have I mean, known of yours? I. I mean, I've been very lucky in general that the things that I've cared about have worked on some level. I'm incredibly proud of and think of it, that Kroll show has. Um, some stuff in there that is that either was like too weird at the time or too specific or honestly how Comedy Central was airing the show. I believe that there is some stuff in Kroll show that if people went back and watched, they realize kind of how much we nailed and are nailing what what a lot of different genres of television and, and media are like. So I would say that for me, Kroll Show is something that I'm incredibly proud of that plenty of people liked and, and has has had a nice like life. But I believe there's some some nuggets in there that if people went back and watched, they would really love. How should they watch it? That's a part of my issue is Comedy Central is part of Viacom. And I think Viacom's done a terrible job of of figuring out how to get their streaming. The world was this, So it's like you can go to the Comedy Central app or at ComedyCentral.com. But honestly, if you go to Amazon and buy it 
or spend or fourteen bucks for go, whatever go the season. Spend fourteen is bucks or, for ten, thirteen yeah. episodes or ten episodes of of Kroll Show. I, I'll go honestly if you want. I'll go buy it. I'll go buy it for you. <laughs> uh, I think going back and watching, and especially watching it when you realize, because what we did was Kroll Show was all of these different characters, and a lot of them you feel inside of Big Mouth. So Lola is based in part on Liz from Publicity. It was these two publicists named Liz. <laughs> um, Coach Steve has some a lot of hints of Ref Jeff, who's a, a referee who wants to hang out with the players. The Hormone Monster's voice is based on this guy is based in part on this guy Nash Ricky, who was a sort of a Brett Michaels esque '80s hair metal band <laughs> who had songs called like "L.A. Deli." It was all about <laughs> all the delis because all the all of those Guns and Roses and all those bands used to hang out at Cantor's Deli in L.A. So he's it's a song about all the different delis in L.A. Uh, but he's, he's sort of he's, he loves he's in recovery and uh, so but all of those characters lived in these different shows inside of Kroll Show. And then over the three seasons, you see a lot of those characters and worlds start to collide and it ends up intersecting in this um, way. So watching the sketches on YouTube is only so gratifying. I think when you, you really need to watch the you shows. You completist. As Seth Meyers described the show and it, termed it, and I made fun of him at the time, but I actually love the term. In a way, it's like sketchuational comedy. It's like sketches that were really sitcoms in, in how they sort of formed and were molded together. So may we trouble you by asking for you to talk us out uh-huh. in the voice of the great hormone monster. M- Maury the hormone monster. Is he monster. Jewish, by the way? Maury? Maury's Beverly. If the way he spends, spells his last name Beverly is how Robert Durst, Robert Durst <laughs> spells. De- <laughs> yeah. It's a B-E-V-E-R. <laughs> L-E-Y, Beverly, how Robert Durst spells it in the jinx or spelled it in real life. <laughs> and it's Maury and Connie. Jesus, Connie, what did you pack in here? I didn't know what to bring. It's Florida, baby. The only time you don't wear a bathing suit is to a funeral. And even then, it depends on who died. No one is dying, Maury. Honestly, I've never been to Florida and not watched someone die. Luckily, I brought a grieving speedo. Mm, my condolences. <laughs> the hormone monster says Connie, so we always said it's quietly. It's Maury Povich and Connie Chong is a wow. weird little if and it's all it's weird how deep some of the stuff goes. Uh, well, well, this has been a wonderful episode of Unorthodox, the cool Jewish podcast with me, Maurice Beverly. Am I Jewish? Unclear. My close. I'm very close friends with Robert Durst. <laughs> is he Jewish? Unclear. Do we want credit for him? That's up for debate. That said, there's nothing up for debate about watching all three seasons of Big Mouth streaming now on Netflix. Amen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you, Nick Kroll. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. First off, uh, a letter really aimed straight for Stephanie. There was some business in there about me and Liel, but I cut to the end of it uh, <laughs> where the writer, after having said, dear unorthodox, ellipsis, ellipsis, says, and Stephanie, my ex-husband had a cat named Yusuf Eslam of course, is the Muslim name of Cat Stevens when Cat Stevens became a Muslim. We called him Joe for short. The cat is probably 16 by now. Anyway, I thought you'd find that cute. Melanie Levin, attorney at law. Well, Melanie Esquire, I appreciate that. I mean, Cat Stevens is going to transition at some point into being Yusuf Islam. Of course. Like, I don't know when it... I'm just trying to figure out what cat years are to human years. Is Cat Stevens Jewish now, but is going to become a Muslim? Cat Stevens... Is is Jewish? Yeah, right. Like My dogs I'm his are Jewish. Mother, right. so I, unlike I, unlike the real Cat Stevens, he was never on the peace. He's train. not on any peace train. <laughs> no. He's now. I, I realize he's six now. Still it's about nine. It's about nine oh five. Do you think morning has broken for him yet? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now let's go to the listener line. Hi, unorthodox. This is Caroline, a fellow Boomus alumni to you, Mark. Um, I had a weird experience yesterday that I haven't been able to shake. I went to a talk about hate speech. And the person in charge of taking on anti-Semitism found out they were Jewish as an adult. So they are a practicing Jew now, but weren't raised Jewish. And for some reason, it felt inappropriate for me that they were speaking about anti-Semitism. And I can't figure out why I feel that way. Stephanie? What do you think? Well, it depends. I mean, there's a way to be an academic expert on anti-Semitism. Deborah Lipset is that expert, right? And it's not necessarily, I mean, I think her, be, her being Jewish has a part of that, but it's because she's a scholar of right. anti-Semitism. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough to say we weren't there. I don't want to criticize any convert or someone who found Jewish roots later in life and be like, you're not allowed to feel these things. Right. So I think it's really, it's really touchy and it's really case by case. I mean, if, if you're like, I'm Jewish and like... Did you become a dentist for the jokes, like Tim Watley, basically? Yeah. Or became a Jew for the jokes? I mean, but look, I mean... Well, becoming a dentist for the jokes is a way but more impressive commitment. For you youngins, that's a Seinfeld I, I reference. So, I sort of agree with Stephanie, but at the same time, like, I think there's something really powerful about it. Like, you make, you make either this discovery or this, you know, choice later in life, 
And all of a sudden it's like, okay, so it's great. It's so beautiful. I'm, I'm so moved by my tradition. Anything else that I need to know? And someone's like, yeah, sit down for a second. There's some things what I need to tell you. What do you know about the right. years 1939? <laughs> 45. Like, it's actually kind of a perspective I would love to hear. Another thought just occurred to me, and Caroline, we're so grateful for your call. What if this person now realizes, having discovered that she has Jewish ancestry, that she's Jewish at 37, that she was present for all sorts of anti-Semitic jokes that she didn't say anything about or heard other right. people talking about Jews in, you know, this way or that? That way mm-hmm. as a non-Jew and now realizes, oh my God, they were talking about me. Yeah. She might have a perspective that actually none of us has ever had, never having been that fly on the wall. But anyway, it's a really interesting question. We'd love to hear what, what the listeners think. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Dear Unorthodox, I was listening to your podcast on my way home from work Friday in honor of the one-year anniversary of the Tree of Life murders. Something struck a chord with me because the next day I took my 16-month-old to Tat Shabbat for the first time. I had been invited by Simone, whom I met recently at a Jewish event. Although I've always gone to high holidays and brought him this year, I've been less engaged in the day-to-day year-round life of Judaism. I want these institutions to exist for my son as they did for me. So I realized the first step is showing up and finding us a Jewish home. While I paused for a second on the way in, thinking about how all those others in Pittsburgh had done the same thing a year ago to never return home, we went in. We had a lovely time and planned to return. Thanks to you, Congregation Achavas Achim in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and thanks Unorthodox for getting me out of my comfort zone and back into my shul. Emily. If I was capable of crying, I would right now. Tatcha just, just for this. And God you know bless. what I love about it is we, look, we love getting these letters and we get them all the time. And some people say, I mean, they say things like, I converted because, I mean, it's very moving that you had some time on a Shabbat morning with your 16-month-old at Tat Shabbat. Like, what a-, a wonderful. Amen. 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 And then finally, to our Facebook group, Merrill Warshoff Press posted, quote, ideas for a bar mitzvah gift. He's not a sports fan. Please ask your teens what their favorite non-sports gift was. Thank you. And there were dozens of comments. Some of them really amazing. And like I want one person's like, oh, get him a shofar. It's like, <laughs> that's kind of strange, but also kind of cool. Like, yeah. I wish someone got me a shofar. But I love this idea. He's not a sports fan, as though that solves the problem. Right. right. It, no, it's an important note, though, right? Yeah. Because a lot of sports-related gifts, though Rebecca would have loved sports-related stuff. Here are some of the suggestions. Swiss Army knife, Amazon gift card, a mezuzah or high necklace. Several people said... Good quality headphones. That seems to be very important for teens. Oh, a good quality leather wallet. Uh, make a donation in his honor to an organization or cause you support. And a pen, like a nice pen. The good old-fashioned classic fountain yeah. pen. For all those, you know, 13-year-olds who really love to- their penmanship. Today I am a fountain pen, as they say. I would say there are only three correct answers to this question. The most correct answer is something Jewish. You know, a, a good book from which he could enjoy and, and study a, a nice, beautiful pair of tefillin, something that would really be meaningful. If you can't do that, the second most correct answer is cash money uh, in denominations of 18 or not, as, yeah. you, as, you, as you wish, 180, 360, whatever suits your budget. And the third correct answer, of course, is a copy of, of the newest Jewish encyclopedia, which every 13-year-old boy, girl uh, must have. I will say it's the not NJE. entirely appropriate for children. Like, it, it's an well, adult book. Yeah. That's what makes it so good. It's like there's, oh. kind of, there's kind of saucy, risque parts. And I want to say about the money thing, because I'm sure we've all been asked this by Gentile friends. I'm going to bar mitzvah. Like, what's the appropriate how much? gift? Oh, how much? Right. The how yeah. much? Like, you know, I hear that yeah. everyone in the Upper East Side is giving $3,600. Yeah. Are you? And whose bar mitzvah are you going to? Honestly. It's like Adam Sandler kid it's like yeah it's two thousand dollars i the answer i give is you give what you can afford right. and 18 or 36 dollars is just 
fine. Just fine. Like, just fine. Anyone, like, I have no time for anyone who says, oh, it's a Shonda to show up with less than 180. No, 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 no. These are 12 and 13-year-olds. Presumably, they're getting gifts from 50 or 100 people. If they got no gift except the privilege of reading Torah uh, in a shul and joining a multi-millennium old tradition, yawn. that's good. But a really. Men, a mensella. I mean, come on. You give what you think is appropriate. I think people feel uncomfortable giving money. Like, the like it's the, the connection of money. Yeah. Like, that's I, why you it, give the NJE, the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Yeah, so this yeah. is basically an extended ad. So, But I also think that people want to give a gift that's fun and, and cool and maybe not necessarily Jewish. Like, they want them to feel like they worked really hard and they can get something they really want. So she she went with the Beats headphones. You know, those, like, big headphones. Yeah, Beats great. by Dre. Anyway, they, she checked with the parents that he did not already have beats, a pair. Beats by Dreidel. Beats by Dreidel. And she points out that the newest Jewish encyclopedia she is getting for her parents and sister for Hanukkah. Another great question for the J Crew, though. Do you have ideas? Like, what did we get wrong in discussing 914-570-4869? Talk to us, people. Gentile of the Week is Sarah Blake. She's the author of The Postmistress and most recently the novel The Guest Book, which tells the story of a wasp dynasty and how their dealings with the few Jews they interact with before, during, and right after World War II sort of end up deeply fracturing the family. Hi, Sarah. Hi. It's so exciting to be talking with you. I loved this book. Oh, thanks. I could not stop reading it. It is very long and I could not put it down. <laughs> Um, will you tell us a little bit about The Guest Book? So The Guest Book is a story of three generations of the Milton family, an old money family that's run out of its money, but not its place, which is an island off the coast of Maine, or more importantly, its sense of its own place. And um, it moves back and forth in tracing the generations from the 30s, the 50s to the present between Manhattan and this island in Maine, tracing the consequences of a no that's uttered one night in uh, 1936 that, as you say, follows down, is passed down through the generations in the many silences that this family excels in. I'd love to start with the prologue. Would you mind reading that for us? Yes. It's the usual story, the man at the tiller reflected, regarding the beautiful derelict on the hill. At the end of old money, there is real estate. There were three of them in the boat that Saturday in June. They had set out from Rockland, Maine, on a day's sail into the bay, and tacking into a cove of one of the many granite islands eight or nine miles offshore, had come face to face with the great white house before them. Some sea captain's pride, sitting squarely on top of a long lawn leading down to a boathouse and dock. The house needed paint. The lawn needed cutting. The boathouse roof line sagged and the shingles slipped. Empty of boats, the dock in front of them had been patched and patched again. It was magnificent. I'm waiting for it to go up for sale, the host of the weekend went on. Low-hanging fruit. Whose is it? The man sitting beside him asked. One of those families who used to run the world. The host stretched his legs, pressing his bare feet against the boat's hull. Wasps. Wasps, the other chuckled. Do they even exist anymore except in their own heads? The host smiled. He had just made a fortune in healthcare. We hear people sort of making fun of these ideas of the wasp. And it's sort of like wasps are the only unprotected class these days in America, the only people you can freely poke fun at because the idea is they are wealthy, they are white, they have it all, and we can make fun of them. Is that something, well, first of all, are you 
Are you one of them? Am I was? <laughs> Am I one of them? I, yeah, I come from a family very much like the Miltons, though, you know, the, this is not my family. I mean, I'd always wanted to write a big, juicy family novel or a big, you know, saga. And at the same time, I really wanted to think about my family and my family's sort of position in the country, especially I started it in 2008. Obama was running. I was completely wanting to join the conversation about how the past and the present were kind of coterminous with his candidacy. And so I thought I would just dive into waspness since, as you say, it's like the, the sort of uber expression of whiteness and, and privilege because it is a kind of invisible class, um, and yet it's the class that has continued and perpetuates itself in silence and in manners, and this is how things are and aren't done. At the same time, the power structures have pretty much moved. The wasps who are the real wasps are generally not anymore running corporations or anything. But I think this image of the patrician and the men specifically who were chosen and who were trained to run the world, very much like Ogden Milton in this. That mythos continues, and I think that mythos is self-serving, even as the reality has shifted quite wide from that. And that was the gap I was interested in. I mean, they say things like darling the jib. I mean, the sailing, yeah. The, yeah. The, the boats, just the island in Maine. Was that did that come from real life? Yeah. So probably the the most autobiographical part of this novel has to do with the fact that in 1936, my grandparents did, in fact, uh, they went out for a day sail and passed one of the islands off the coast of Maine. There was a for sale sign on the dock and they tacked in and they bought it in the middle of the Depression. And for me, as I was starting to think again about the kind of unspoken way in which class and my sense of my own class was passed on, you know, the fact that they bought an island in the middle of the Depression <laughs> says volumes. And yet it was just part of the story. It was just passed on. It was like, yeah, so that's what they did. And that's what I really wanted to interrogate a little bit. What has gone unmentionable, what we don't talk about, but in fact, that's the hallmark of how you pass on that kind of power and class. The stereotype of these people is that there are these sort of stony silences. Right. No one's really talking about difficult issues. And that's actually at the center Absolutely. of this book, these secrets that go on. So how true is that stereotype? Each family is going to be its own family. And so I would say that if there is a kind of wasp caricature that probably does hold true, the ethos in which I was raised, I think, is probably familiar to many people of my sort of age and background, which is uh, something that Kitty, the matriarch, says many times, some things are better off left unsaid. That's a sense of manners and decorum, but it's also protective. And, and we know, given what happens to Kitty and what Kitty does, the notion of the kind of silence that protects but also guards is very much a sign that, that is passed down. So that in my family, it was this notion of it would be rude to mention, to protect the kind of everybody feeling comfortable in a room. But of course, the cost of that is that what's actually happening is not being said. So without giving too much away, because this book is a series of twists and turns that I highly recommend. Can we just, let's talk about there's three Jewish characters who really, yeah. the first two especially, shape so much yeah. of what happens with the family. You know, on the first pages of the book, we're introduced to Elsa Hoffman in Berlin in 1935. And you sort of get a feeling things are not going to end well for Elsa once you like once you see a Jewish character in 1935. Tell us a little bit of her story and how she relates to this 
patrician New York family? I had done a lot of research anyway on the 30s for the postmistress. And I was living in Berlin. And the Stumble Stones, which are all over the streets of Berlin, it's an artist project that was begun by Gunter Dumrig. And they are brass paving stones that are set literally into the sidewalk outside the last place a Jewish person or family lived or worked before they were deported, taken, and murdered. And their stones, like the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, are very unequivocal. The language is exact. It says, here lived the name the, the date they were born, when they were taken, deported, and then ermordet. You know, so the word murdered and then their date. And often it's the date in, like in Auschwitz in, in the various things. They are all over the city. I really wanted to render a kind of daily life of a Jewish person in Berlin who is the walls are starting to close around and you might or might not be able to see them depending on what you were seeing. And so Elsa Hoffman is the daughter of of a man, Wilhelm, who is the head of one of the branches of German steel. He has joined the Nazi party, as he sees it, to, to keep Germany safe from Hitler. And he is not Jewish, but he's he was married to a Jewish woman. So Elsa is their daughter, and Elsa is Jewish. So she starts to see that her father has made basically a pact with the devil and is in a very loose association, a, a loose resistance modeled on the Red Orchestra, which was a spy network. Gentiles and Jews that were working in very often high up in the Nazi party in order, again, to destabilize the Nazis from within. I had thought initially that I was going to be telling the story of the Red Orchestra and that Ogden Milton was somehow connected to it. But I realized that if I turned him into a hero, what was going to happen in the rest of the book, it was going to undo that. So what was remained was Elsa, who is working in the resistance but knows Ogden because Ogden's working with her father and her husband, Gerhardt, who is a violinist, who is Jewish, and their son, Willie. Ogden is friends with Elsa, and Elsa appears. You see her working in Berlin um, at the same time as her father and Ogden are signing a, a pact, or, a, you know, signing uh, Ogden invests in uh, German steel. And then later in the book, Elsa reappears and asks a pivotal question of Kitty. And then we come back to this in the post-war years when our next Jewish character is Len Levy, who is working for Ogden and basically comes across the records of what did or did not happen and what Ogden did or did not do during the war when with the business papers and when he got out. And Len Levy, I think, is my favorite character oh, in this great. book because he's just like, his Jewishness is interesting because he's so conscious of himself being an outsider. Mm -hmm. He so boldly wants to fit in. Mm -hmm. And so he wears it with a kind of, so what? Mm -hmm. He does have a good line when he goes to the island. He remarks that the furniture is really uncomfortable. Yeah. And then in the, the next generation, Evie, our real, our main protagonist, her husband is Jewish. And yeah. he also comments yeah. on the furniture in the yeah. house. Yeah. So is it true? There isn't a comfortable house. Uh, yes, yeah, seat in the house. Yes, absolutely. I feel like that verges into a stereotype too, though. You know, like, can I have all the Jewish characters remark? I'm like, why isn't there a comfortable chair in here? You know, but that was always that sense of, you know, again, 
what is the given, you know, what you sort of pass on without seeing it. But Len, Len is an interesting character to me too, because, he, you know, he's a brilliant man. He comes out of Harvard Business School and it sounds like he could have had the pick of wherever, whatever investment banking firm he went to. He didn't want to go for the, you know, the big Jewish banking firms. And he wanted to join one of the old white shoe wasp firms because he wanted to be a lion among the lambs. Like he even then saw that there was opportunity in shifting, taking the sort of old institution and kind of blowing it up from the inside and seeing opportunity in being able to both use that, the sort of old wasp, you know, network that was, again, you don't need to know about us. If you need to know about us, then you don't need us. But also he pushes them to think past how they might operate in the banking world. Can you describe his innovate, like what he sort of pushes the bank to do? He works for Ogden and he suggests that the bank start to advise everybody who works in a company, you know, the secretaries, the janitors, not just the people in charge. I mean, essentially, he's saying everybody can be an investor. And why doesn't Milton Higginson get ahead and open themselves up to the public? Milton Higginson sees that kind of innovation as, well, that's just not what we do. And Len, his frustration with this group, he's like, why? They should be able to, you know, have everything. And yet they don't. Their manners stops them from actually progressing. So I feel like part of what I wanted to look at, too, is like showing how the power shift happened. And it happened because the aristocracy said, well, we don't do that. And so as a result, money and power and the way the country evolved went right past them. In the contemporary generation, we have Evie and Paul who live in the West Village. And the question is what to do with the island. Mm -hmm. Paul's like, sell it. Like, you mm -hmm. know, Paul is sort of the foil almost to mm -hmm. Evie's, even though she is worldly and smart and understands what the realities of her family. She can't really let go of this island. And so I'm curious in your own family, I mean, does the, is the island still around? Did you guys the have to make it? The island still around and uh, members of my family still own it. All of us go, but only a few actually own it still. Mm. So we, you know, if we go, we're we're renting or we're. And so, what does it feel like when you're there? I mean, it's, the descriptions of it sound kind of amazing. You know, mm -hmm. there's like the lobster. You know, you go, you go get the mussels, you put on the boots, and you, you know, yeah. I can't even describe these things correctly because they're quite foreign to me, but very exciting. And then you have the, you know, the family there and stuff like that, and it feels like a magical place. Does it still have that magic it today? Absolutely, still has that magic, and I think that this is the power of any place that we return to over and over. And then over and over through generations, that's a sort of profound placeholder, not only for a family, but also for yourself. The place holds you. The place is the memory that then you step back into. But I think that that's the kind of thing that also happens, you know, when we return to our grandparents' dinner table or, you know, the, the repetitions where you keep returning to a place that the past is actually active. So how do we open our islands up? That's such a great question. I feel like we're in, in an astonishing cultural moment where we see the link between kind of cultural expression and historical reframing. Like literally, you know, with the 1619 Project, with Jill Lepore's These Truths, and the African American Museum. Also, if you read Eric Foner's Reconstruction, which is 30 years old, but I feel like is the kind of underpinning of this, the way in which establishing that freedom, the idea of freedom, and practical slavery are foundational. If you put those two side by side as the history, as that's American history, that those two have always been linked, 
then you set up a system in which all of us exist. And so there's a way in which that gives a kind of opening to not divide so purely into white, black, like this is the kind of white person you are, this is the kind of black person you are, but that we actually are in this system together. I feel like the conversations have just gotten bigger and broader. I have great hope through that. I think my most important question then is how comfortable are the chairs in your home right now? <laughs> yes. Um, oh boy, we have some, we have a, well, we did, like I, I sort of overcompensated. I got this enormous overstuffed <laughs> sofa that was so big for the room that we couldn't even move in it, so I had to sell it. <laughs> so now we have a more moderate comfort. I think you'd be okay. okay. <laughs> Sarah Blake, thank you so much. The book is The Guest Book, and I would highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much. What a great conversation as well. Mazel tovs, Liel. Have you a mazel tov? I do. Today, Tuesday, as we record, is the publishing day of my dear friend Lee Smith's new book. It's a very political book. It's called The Plot Against the President. So you know all that you need to know right there. But here's the thing. I don't care where you stand on political issues. It's a great, well-reported thriller. And for a political book... It's a novel? No. It's not. It's nonfiction. It's nonfiction. It's nonfiction, it's nonfiction that and reads for like fiction. It's nonfiction that reads like fiction political book in the year 2019 to reach number one on Amazon, as this book did, beating Elton John and Prince. And us. And everyone else. Well, we're number one uh, in Haggadah, don't is, worry. We are. It's is quite an achievement. So um, if you're looking for a book that will either delight you or make you very angry, depending on your political leanings, Lee Smith. Tablet contributor. Tablet contributor and dear friend. Okay. Do you guys remember after our L.A. live show when we went out with my little, little Danny Potter? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And her then boyfriend, and, John. And Rabbi Sari Laufer. Of Hold course, on. yes. Her, yeah. her then boyfriend? Her then boyfriend. Oh. And now? They had a Sukkot proposal. He proposed in their sukkah. They're affianced. They're affianced. Um, I'm so excited for Danny Potter. Did he affiance her with one of those like lulav Yeah, he, he ignited her with the lulav. <laughs> one of those was, woven. It was so sweet and I love her and she is on her oh, own Jewish oh, journey and I am very supportive. I also want to shout out my sister-in-law, Sarah Silver. She has a Halloween birthday. Sarah Silver, nay Cohen. Happy Silver. Happy. Happy Silverween. Happy, happy Hollow Silverween. Silver. All hollow Silver. Happy birthday to you. And uh, my Mazel Tovs, the great Pittsburgh historian Barbara Burston has a new biography out. It's of Mayor Sophie Masloff, who is the, I believe, the only ever Jewish mayor of Pittsburgh. She was this terrific, people of a certain generation know her because she was this terrific urban mayor. And I say this term with love. She was an old Jewish broad and everyone <laughs> loved Mayor Sophie. She never went to college. She came up through the Democratic machine. She was tough as nails and she was really one of the great American figures. I'd and love this to is, read that. This, I, it is a great book and it is the first ever biography of Sophie Masloff, who was a, a unique American. Was she like the Bella Abzug? I was just. She was that. the Bella Abzug, except less controversial. Everybody same loved hats. Sophie. Same hats, <laughs> same voice, but everybody loved Sophie. Sophie Maslow was a uniting figure. Like Pittsburghers of all political persuasions, you, you could not love this. Mayor goes Sophie. on my to read. List. She was the grandma of Pittsburgh. I want to give a shout out to my schoolmates David and Daryl Cooperstock, who became a Bubby and Zadie this past week. Aww. Their daughter had a baby. I don't remember if it's a boy or girl, uh, but Mazel Tov to to them. And I want to give a shout out to Rabbi Jeremy Marquis of Beth Shalom in Pittsburgh and his wife, Ilana. They had their first anniversary on October 28th. Last year, they were out of town in Los Angeles for their wedding when the shooting happened. And they came back on the Wednesday or Thursday afterwards. And quite famously, this is local legend. Now, Beth Shalom did a big Sheva Bruchas 
after Kiddush that Saturday on the one week anniversary of the shooting because in Judaism, you don't let sad times ruin a simcha. So they actually had a massive sheva brachas for this couple, for their associate rabbi who had been out of town and couldn't be with his flock because he was busy marrying his beshert. And it's an extraordinary story. Anyway, they are one year married. I met Rebetzin Alana, if I may be so bold. I don't know if she goes by Rebetzin, but um, who's a pediatric psychiatry resident and very much uh, has, one might say, a more important career herself. I met Alana this past weekend and uh, huge mazels to that. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. If you're looking for more good reading in your day, if you're looking to make that phone of yours in your pocket kind of useful, go to tabletmag.com. There's so much good content there. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. You can get our newsletter custom written for you, bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live, so to book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross. That's jcross, cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. You should wear and carry unorthodox. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to find our t-shirts, our onesies, our mugs, all sorts of unorthodox swag. By the way, that book that you want to order, the Newish Jewish Encyclopedia, that's a different website. That's tabletmag.com slash newish Jewish. We're on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger and our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Stephen Fuchs of Congregation Bat Yam down in Sanibel Island, Florida. That is a sweet, sweet place to take a vacation and grab some davening along the way. We come to you from Argo Studios, which refuses to release our podcast unless we first investigate a rival podcast. Shalom, friends. In the genius high school where I went to, uh, they took sex ed very seriously, but they decreed that sex ed would be for kids by kids. So they chose two of us in every class. That's which like was some Israeli me shit. Yeah, and the really hottest girl in class. Wow. And they're like, the two of you should now meet and figure out how to talk about sex to the rest of your classmates.